Well, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, probably what's not a very familiar passage of Scripture, and that's Esther chapter 9. And I'm going to read it for you momentarily, but I feel like I need to set some of the groundwork for this passage. Uh, I remember reading a children's book on the book of Esther, and they never got beyond really past chapter 7, uh, because there's a lot of tough things to uh, consider uh, beyond uh, that particular chapter. Esther chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 uh, through 19. A few things about the book of Esther. Uh, the time frame of the accounts that it records, somewhere between 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. Uh, that's the reign of a Persian king named Ahasuerus. He's also known as Xerxes. So you'll see those two names coming through in your in your English translations, either Ahasuerus or Xerxes. So this is, this is after the fall of Babylon. It's after the people of Israel have been exiled. And it's after some of the people have actually returned to rebuild uh, the temple under the decree of Cyrus the Persian uh, back in 539 BC. But we still have some of the people of God who are, are left in this country of exile. And they're wondering, I'm sure, whether God is still with them. They're wondering, you know, the promises that they look like they might be fulfilled for those people who have gone back. But what about us? Do those promises actually still hold true for us? So that's kind of the, uh, the date line for the book and what's going on. But in terms of the storyline itself, the book is meant be meant to read, be read in just one sitting. So that's how you have to read the book. So I need to review a few things. All of you know the story of Esther. Can I just do this at a high level? So you've got these kind of key characters in the story of Esther. You've got Ahasuerus the king at the beginning of the book. He wants to get revenge on the Greeks. This is sort of the undercurrent of the story. So he holds a big party for all of his officials. Uh, they come into Susa. He throws that party. He wants to show off uh, to garner military support. And one of the re- ways that he actually shows off is that he wants to bring his wife in. And she refuses. Her name is Vashti. And because she refuses... She is actually deposed. And the wheels are set in motion whereby Ahasuerus is going to actually choose a new queen for himself. That moves us to chapter 2. And what's actually happened between chapters 1 and chapter 2 is that war with the Greeks has happened. It's been disastrous uh, for Ahasuerus. And so he comes back home with tail between his legs. And he sets his mind to looking for this queen. And so they basically hold a contest, and Esther wins. And reading between the lines, Esther wins because she performs well in the king's bedroom, in his harem. Just as an aside, we need to be very careful about looking at characters in the Old Testament scriptures, particularly as moral examples where the scriptures do not dictate that we should do so. All right, These are flawed characters, just like we are. Just like we are. So Esther becomes queen. It's marvelous, marvelous how this happens. We don't know exactly why it happens at that point. But then we see uh, the wheels turning again. And we see that there is a a man who actually hates the Jewish people. His name is Haman. And this hatred is sort of uh, set off by this relationship that he has with somebody who seems to be an official in the king's court whose name is Mordecai, a relative, a cousin of now Queen Esther. And so Haman devises a plan. He doesn't just want to get rid of Mordecai. He wants to get rid of all the Jews 
throughout all the 127 provinces in the empire. He wants to eradicate them. Now, if that actually happens, what happens to the Lord Jesus Christ? What happens to the gospel? No Lord Jesus Christ, no gospel. So this is big stuff. This isn't just stuff that's happening in a court in Susa in a world empire back in the day. This is redemptive history stuff. If this actually takes place, God's promises fail. But this book is written to demonstrate to us, though God is not mentioned one time in the book, He is operating all the time in behind the scenes. Isn't that an encouraging thought? All the time. He's superintending everything that His redemptive purposes might come to pass. And now we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning at His right hand and all things that happen to us are for the church, for our good, for our conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, getting back to Haman, he sets this plan in motion. He wants to destroy all the Jews and an edict is actually issued by the king. The king is sort of caught a little bit unawares, I think, by that. That edict is issued and then a little bit later on we see how Mordecai influences Esther to sort of reverse this plan. This theme of reversal or a a good English word that we all need to learn is the word peripety. Because the gospel story is all about peripety. It's all about reversal. You're going to see the tables being turned throughout the gospel story and indeed throughout all of Uh, the redemptive story. Tables are always being turned. And so Esther approaches the king. The king holds out the scepter and she invites Haman and the king to two consecutive meals. And meals are a big motif in the book as well. Feasting is a big motif in the book. And so they come to one, Haman and the king. She doesn't give that request right away. And then they come to a second meal and then she drops the bombshell. This is my request, that you would have my life preserved and have the life of my people preserved because there's somebody who has actually devised a scheme to destroy the Jewish people and it's this vile and wicked Haman. And so Haman's days are numbered and in chapter 7 we actually see that. He's actually, it says hanged on a gallows. Uh, we don't actually have a, a good English word for actually what happens there. He's actually pinned on a stake 75 feet high. So if you can get that sort of mental picture in your head, that's what actually happens to this enemy of God because he's the enemy of God's people. That all leaves sort of outstanding. What about that edict? That's still outstanding. The people of God are under this edict of death, under this edict of condemnation. Well, what about that? And that brings us to chapter 8. And In chapter 8, we find that a counter-edict is actually issued. An edict of life. Does that sound kind of like gospel to you? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? Death. Edict of death. And yet Jesus Christ comes into the picture. And John explained well for us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lives for us. He dies for us. And now, if we but put our faith and trust in Him, life is ours. So you've got this edict of death and this edict of life coming through in the text. But then we actually see it actually being played out in Esther chapter 9. So let me read this portion for you. And then we're just going to pray briefly one more time. And then I'm going to work our way through the text. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day, When the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. 
The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews destroyed, killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon, and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vezatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. Let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth, and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day of, for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Well, let's join our hearts together in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you do not leave your people alone. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. We thank you for your general revelation and now your special revelation as it's contained in the book of Esther here. And we are fully convinced that this is your word. We acknowledge that. We pray for your Spirit's presence to be operating in our midst. May he have his full orb ministry here. Uh, May he teach us things about you, things about ourselves that we need to know, things about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be corrected where we might be off in some of our understanding of who you are and who we are before you and what Christ has done. Uh, May we be rebuked as well where that is needed. Lord, we have made confession to you already that we are still those who struggle with sin. Though you see us as righteous because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, you are still continuing your reforming work in us. So Lord, if there is any wicked way in us, we pray that you would lead us into the way everlasting. We pray that your Holy Spirit 
would train us in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We want to be a people who are on fire for you. We want to be a people who love the Lord Jesus Christ more. So we pray that you would use this this ancient text, these strange words of Scripture to that blessed end. And we do pray for those who know not you yet. We do pray that they would be granted faith and repentance, that they would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this day for the salvation of their souls. For Jesus Christ's sake we pray. Amen. So I remember R.C. Sproul, a Presbyterian theologian who went home to be with the Lord last year. Um, He was actually, when he was a very young man, uh, he was talking, he was a lecturer, I forget what university he was at. He was lecturing there and he was speaking about the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can imagine this, somebody yelled out from the congregation, that's primitive and obscene. That's primitive and obscene. And he was sort of taken aback by that. And he kind of stepped back, hoping that would go away. And he said, what did you say? He goes, I'll say it again. That was primitive and obscene. Thinking about the cross. And Sproul actually said, you know what? I totally agree with you. It is primitive. And often what God... I mean, Christianity is not sort of a, a religion for the elite. It's, it's, it's something that the uninitiated can understand. And it's spelled out for us in big bloody letters on the cross of Calvary that our sin deserves death. It's spelled out there. And it's obscene as well, Sproul said, because is there anything more obscene than the sinless Son of God paying for the sins of God's people on the cross of Calvary? I thought about those words, primitive and obscene, and you come to a text like Esther chapter 9 and you go, whoa, there's a lot of blood in that text. I could have uh, termed this particular sermon in a couple of different ways, the justice of God, but I wanted you to really be impacted by the text. It's two days on which blood flowed, or two days when blood flowed. There's blood all over the place uh, in the text, and we, we sort of recoil at that. We recoil at that. But I want to say this, though it is a bloody text, it's here for us in God's Word for a purpose. You understand what's happening in the Old Testament Scriptures, right? The Holy Spirit of the living God, through the prophets and through other, other writers, He's actually providing with us with categories whereby we might understand the glorious nature of what God has accomplished for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're reading Esther, you're not just reading about Esther. I read it on the back of your bulletin here. You are Christ-centered. We believe that Jesus Christ is central to the biblical story. Amen? You're going to find Him here in Esther. And all of the major themes of Scripture may only be understood properly in relation to Him. So we see something of the justice of God coming through in this text. And we therefore begin to understand something in the nature of our own sin. And its heinousness. And how egregious and ugly it is. We also understand something of God's other hatred for our sin. And of God's utter resolve to actually deal with our sin. If we don't understand that, we're not going to love Jesus Christ and love the living God as we ought. We need to understand that bad news of the gospel before we can actually worship God aright. And then be empowered to live those lives that God has called us to. So what does sin merit? It merits death. 
And I think, you know, all of this, sort of us understand this intuitively as little kids. I used to run a kids club out of uh, a project in downtown Toronto. This was a really rough kind of neighborhood. We had all sorts of kids coming, and they didn't know Adam for, from Eve. And one, on one of the lessons, I just wanted to convey to them sort of the whole concept of sin. And so I, I had some plaster scenes, some clay at the front. And I said, I, want you, to, I want, you, want you to come up here and build a little man for me. So he fashioned a little man. And that took him about five minutes or so. And he was quite pleased with that creation that he made. And now I said, I want you to imagine that little man coming to life. And they kind of imagined that little man sort of dancing around and pleasing the one who created them. I go, now I want you to imagine that little man spitting in your face. And I go, what would you do? And routinely, all of them, crush the little man. <laughs> and, and so intuitively, a kid sort of understands this. But you know, we, we live in a sin-cursed world and we're influenced by sinful thoughts all the time. And then even as Christians, we come to a text like this and we recoil. You know, because of all the blood that is in the text. And yet, our sin only merits death. God doesn't owe us anything. But praise be to God for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the entire, one of the ways you can actually look at Esther as as sort of unpacking for us the theme of holy war. God is warring throughout redemptive history against sin. And he often uses agents to actually mete out holy war. So if you want to understand what's happening to Haman in the book of Esther... And what's happening to his clan and sort of all who are on his side, you actually got to go back. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus 17, verse 14. We're going to see one of, uh, or the group of people that represent uh, the ancestors of Haman. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 17, verse 14, remember the Amalekites are opposing the people of God at this point, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Amalek opposing the purposes of God, the people of God, and therefore opposing God. Is God just to actually make this pronouncement? Yes or no? Absolutely. And then as you go through the history of the children of Israel, you see actually this being played out. Turn out to Deuteronomy 25 verse 19. Deuteronomy 25, 19. And now the people of God, they're on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And God reminds His people of something. When the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to, to, to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So when you get in, blot out Amalek. Any Amalekites that are there. Is God just? Yes or no? He's just in doing this. And so now the kings, the judges, the time of the judges has passed. And now the kings are, are coming into play in the history of Israel. Now turn to 1 Samuel 15. Look at verses 1 to 3. Who's the first king of Israel? Give it to me. That's right. Saul. 1 Samuel 15, 1 to 3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. All the Amalekites take none of the plunder, destroy them all. 
God just? Yes or no? Absolutely just. Now what happens in the story? Saul doesn't do very well, does he? He actually keeps the plunder. Comes to uh, the prophet Samuel and says, you know, I've done the will of God. Well, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And he's actually spared Agag, a name that comes to bear in the book of Esther. And some Jewish rabbis actually think on that night that he's actually spared, he actually conceives with his wife, and from that offspring springs eventually Haman, the Agagite in the book of Esther. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't do God's will, and then this whole thing continues, this opposition of the Amalekites. And so as God's agent in this just war, he doesn't do God's will. And Samuel actually has to hack Agag to pieces, but that seed is still preserved. And that brings us all the way to the book of Esther. And Haman, we find in the book, is a really good Amalekite. Really good Amalekite. He wants nothing to do with the people of God. He wants them out of the way. He wants them eliminated. And I've reviewed that story for you. But I want to just review once again in chapter 8. After that edict of death is issued by Haman through King Ahasuerus, and now having the favor of the king, this counter-edict is issued after Haman is gone now, he's dead, hanged on the gallows. We read this in Esther 8, verses 10 to 12, latter half of verse 10. And Mordecai wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included. Let me just stop there. Does that rub you the wrong way? This isn't like the Titanic. Everybody under the condemnation of the living God. Children and women included. Everybody who opposes God. And to plunder their goods. Now, if you're knowledgeable at all about this concept of holy war, you will know that they were not to do that in holy war. But what Mordecai seems to be doing is he's just countering point by point that edict that Haman issued. And what we'll discover in the text is that they didn't actually take any of the plunder. They understood that they were God's agents in this holy war. On one day, verse 12, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. That's the very day that Haman's edict was to be carried out. Now, two points. Two days of blood. Day number one, day number two. What I'm going to do is just I'm going to work through the text and explain some things that are in the verses. And then when we come to the conclusion, we're going to bring it forward and we're going to see it through the lens of the New Testament Scriptures. You all with me still? All right. Day number one. Verse one. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Let's just stop there. And I want you, if you can meditate on one little part of Esther chapter 9. When you go away after this Lord's Day, meditate on those lines, the reverse occurred. As I said before, we see this kind of thing playing out in the entire history of the world, in the entire history of redemption. It seems that things are going one way, but God enters in. 
and he turns the tables. Some English translations actually put it that way. And then personalize it. You see that in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the tables have turned for you. Isn't that a blessing? Yeah, like you deserve condemnation. And yet God diffused that quickening ray and a dungeon flamed with light. Isn't that great? That's grace. And that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it might seem like things are going south right now in the world. But take heart, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. One day Jesus Christ will enter into time and space and bring it all to an end. And we will dwell forever with Him in righteousness forever and ever and ever. The tables will be turned once again. Great phrase there. Look at verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. So this is really interesting to me, to lay hands on those who sought their harm. We need to understand that the justice of God is never arbitrary. Notice that in the text. It's not arbitrary. It targets those who oppose His people in any way. So what's the implication? Well, be on the side of God and be on the side of God's people. More on that as we conclude. Look at verses 3 and 4 now. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Remember I said to you that what is happening in the Old Testament scripture is that the Holy Spirit is planting these little seeds, these little categories whereby we can understand something of that story of stories in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here you've got a king He's got an agent who's going to enact his edict. And you've got a whole bunch of people who fear that agent who carry out his decree. You have a king. You have an agent. And then you've got these little agents who carry out the decree of the great king. Now that doesn't sound at all like the sort of business that we're involved in in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, does it? It does. You have these little seeds all over the place. If you've got more questions about that, you can ask me later on. It's a whole sermon. Verses 5 and 6. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Adding to that in verse 16, out in the counties, out in the rural areas, 75,000. I said to our people in Sarnia, that's the entire city, gone. Sometimes we don't come to grips with the numbers are here. But the numbers are here. They're purposeful. God has actually made a promise. An edict has been passed. He's made a promise even before that that He would preserve a people from which Messiah would come. And here we see the effectiveness of the Word of the living God. God promises that His Christ will come back. It will happen. So we see these numbers. They prove the effectiveness of the Word of the living God to us. Now verses 7 to 10. Do you love all those names? I also say to my congregation, we often come across some great Bible names. And I say, you know, if you're having kids right now, Uz and Buzz, great names for your kids, first and second. But none of these names you should use for any of your kids. Okay? Don't use them. Parshandatha, Dalphon, Azpatha, Paratha, Adelia, Eridatha, 
Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, Vezatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha. Now here's the question that you ought to ask yourself when you come across names like this. They're the first time that they're mentioned in the book. Why are they here? Remember, the theme is holy war. One thought that ought to come to your mind is that there's an individual reckoning. God knows every single individual on the planet by name, and there's an individual accounting. So that was the first thought that actually came to my mind, and that should be impressed upon you. But as I was reading through some commentaries, some other interesting things came out. Morphology is sort of how things are actually written down. So when you go back to some of those ancient Hebrew manuscripts and you come to these names, they're actually off into the margins. It's kind of how like we would write in English and we'd put a little asterisk and we'd write something in the column. That's how these names are. There's only one other place where that's done in Scripture. It's done actually in Joshua 12, verses 9 to 24. And if you know anything about that passage, it also is in the theme under that banner of holy war, the justice of God, and what's being listed there are the conquered kings of Canaan. And they're all set up on the side. And so an observant reader would look at this and they would say, ah, these these are proper casualties of holy war, of the justice of God. They would have been reading that. There's another interesting thing that some scholars have drawn out. They said these names, names in the book of Esther are interesting, we, we know that Ahasuerus' real name was actually Xerxes. Ahasuerus would translate to something like King Headache in English. King Headache. Esther sounds a lot like Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess of love and war. So it may be, it may be that some of the names in the book of Esther are actually re- used to represent things or concepts. And so this might be the case in the case of these names. Uh, one scholar said they might be what are called diva names, D-A-I-V-A. And he says this, they were once used of the gods in early Iranian and Hindu writings, but later came to be associated with demonic powers in Eastern religions. If the names of Haman's sons do reflect this origin, the original readers would have probably recognized them as such. The author lists the names of Haman's sons possibly to show the allegiance of Haman and his family to the demonic powers of darkness and evil and therefore, again, proper casualties of holy war. Interesting. So, that's day one on which which blood flowed. It's a day of holy war when the holy God, through his divine warrior, administered his bloody judgment against sin and his enemies. But the blood doesn't stop flowing yet. We've got another day. Verses 11 to 15. Again, let's just take this a few verses at a time. Verses 11 and 12. First of all, let's pull out some things and explain them. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. This is amazing to me. What further is your request? Do whatever you want. This is the king of the world empire of the day. And the king's thoughts and the king's, the course of his heart, it's in the hand of who? The living God. 
The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. If you understand anything about Ahasuerus from Esther, he's kind of like a King Henry VIII. If you know anything about his history. He's very capricious. Don't know how, what he's going to do at any one time. And I thought to myself again, you know, sometimes we get so disheartened because we, we sort of see news on this plane. We don't understand that there is one God ruling over everything for the good of his people through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Prime Minister Stewart who is on the throne. Amen? I know you're Prime Minister, not personally. I looked him up on the internet. It's not Prime Minister Trudeau back home who is on the throne. It's Jesus Christ who is on the throne working everything for the good of His people. And the furtherance of His kingdom. Until there is one people drawn from every ethnicity on the planet worshipping Him. And you're involved in that. You're in that reign. You are a people, as you walk around, as you rub shoulders with people in Bridgetown or wherever you live, as you're rubbing shoulders with, your, with people, you are bringing that kingdom so close to them. You're bringing that kingdom near. Oh, it's Christ who reigns. May we remember that. See how there's all these little sermons within the big sermon? It's amazing. Now verse 13. And Esther said, Well, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So, Esther asks, Those ten dead sons, I want them put up on stakes for everybody to see. And I want to be done what was done today to be done again tomorrow in the city of Susa. Now, what do you think about Esther here? Now, you can, you can come away with a few thoughts. First of all, you, you might not just know what's going on in her mind because we're not actually told that. And that would be really good to land on that. You're sort of, it's ambiguous. It's a purposeful ambiguity, ambiguity in the text so that we would understand that no matter what Esther is doing and where her heart is, God is ruling over all of this. He's a God of providence, right? But having said that, we can come to two conclusions. Only two. She's either unjust or she's just. Right? She's a little bit bloodthirsty now. And so this is why she wants this extra day. I don't kind of land there. I kind of land on the second one because of this whole concept of holy war. There, there's some people left over who oppose the purposes of God. There's some Agagites still hanging around in Susa. Some Amalekites. They need to be dealt with too. We're in holy war here. So give me tomorrow what I had today. I think that's what's going on here. And this is just a reminder to us. This is a reminder to us that nobody escapes the judgment of God. Nobody. And this is why this second day is here. Very briefly in verses 14 to 15, we notice how this is holy war by what is written here. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men, but they laid no hands on the plundered. They laid no hands on the plunder also appears in verse 10, verse 16, three times that we might understand that what's going on here is God meeting out His justice against His enemies. Now verses 16 to 19, we're not going to go through in any kind of detail, but you sort of understand why the Jews celebrated, right? This great peripety, this great reversal. And then there's a, a feast that commemorates it year after year. And if I can just do another little side sermon. 
we're sort of engaged in that too, aren't we, as Christians? A great victory, a great reversal occurs on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we celebrate something today. A feast. And so, so if you're wondering whether you know, Purim should still be, or Purim should still be celebrated today, we kind of already do. It's just celebrating an even greater victory than actually happens here. So that's what's going on in those verses. I, I won't repeat them now. But we want to kind of bring this to a close and we want to bring it forward. I need to say this. No king or queen perfectly fulfilled the role of the divine warrior and the articles of God's holy war. That is to say, no king until who? Yeah, this is where the Sunday school class scholar is always right with that answer. It's Jesus. It's true. Jesus is the divine warrior. God's strategy, said one writer, against sin and evil was awaiting the perfect warrior who could execute divine justice with clean hands and a pure heart. It's Jesus Christ. But you know what I find fascinating? Once that divine warrior, that final divine warrior enters into the picture, there are two days on which blood flows. Now you might be thinking, what on earth is he talking about? Well, bear with me, all right? Let me just let it hang there. Two days when blood flowed in the text here. The divine warrior enters in. There's two days on which blood flows. Let me give you day number one. In the fullness of time, God had meted out his justice against sin, not through his divine warrior, but upon his divine warrior, even Jesus Christ. Think about that. In day one of the final holy war, to satisfy divine justice, blood flowed. But it was the blood of Jesus Christ, the divine warrior. That sword that was used to pierce Amalek through Mordecai and Esther, that is driven now into the divine warrior for those who opposed him. Do you see how the story of the Lord Jesus Christ is so much better? He's so much more glorious. I mean, Esther and Mordecai, great people, I'm sure. Beloved of God, I'm sure. But Jesus Christ, so much better. The truer and better Mordecai, if I can put it that way. And the victory that he assures is outstanding because we would have fully expected when he came into the world that he would have been bearing that sword and meeting out God's divine justice. But instead, the sword went into him for you and I. Amen? It's glorious. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Day one when blood flowed. You know, there's another day. And I'm going to speak of it in past tense. Because that's what the prophets did. It's actually future. But it's so sure I'm going to speak of it in the past tense. At the end of time... God meted out His justice against sin again through His divine warrior, even the Lord Jesus Christ. But when He comes the second time, it's different, isn't it? The first time that He comes into the world, it is not to judge the world, but to save those who have faith in Him. The second time that He comes into the world, what does it actually look look like? Can I give you a picture of it in the book of Revelation? Turn to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Look at verses 14 to 20. And I say to you this morning, with all the earnestness that I can muster, this is certainly going to happen soon. 
Then I looked. You understand with the book of Revelation, it is apocalyptic in its nature. It is full of symbols and visions. They point to divine, eternal realities. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. Who's that? Jesus. With a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and listen to this, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. There will be another day when Jesus enters in, God's justice will be meted out, and blood will flow. So here's the question Where are you in the story today? Where are you in the story? Did blood flow for you 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross? If so, you can say, praise God. I'm redeemed. I'm a child of the living God. I'm part of this kingdom that He is building, this kingdom that's never going to end. Hopefully that fuels you to live a life for Him. But if you are not found hidden in Him this morning, This is your lot in Revelation chapter 14. God will demand a personal reckoning and your blood will flow. And not just for a moment in time, but forever and ever and ever and ever, never ending, billions upon billions of years. And so here's the application. Flee to Jesus. Flee to that divine warrior. You you don't want to meet God alone. You need that advocate. The one who bore the blow himself for the sake of your sin. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you can sing, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Flee to Him and be saved. Amen.